Good evening. This is Justin Ford in the studio for Africa Christian Action Salt and Light on Radio Tigerberg. Tonight we are discussing should Christians celebrate Christmas? Dr. Hammond, what does the Bible say about the Christmas celebration? Well, nowhere in the Bible are we actually commanded to celebrate the Lord's birth, although we are commanded to remember his death. We also command to apply the Lord to Christ to all areas of life. If that's the case, that there is no mention in the Bible, why then should Christians pay any attention to an increasingly materialistic Christmas holiday? Well, we do celebrate our own birthdays. We often celebrate our nation's uh, Independence Day. Uh, people in Britain celebrate the Queen's birthday and things like that. So it does make sense to mark the incarnation. But rather than celebrate humanistic pagan festivals like Halloween, May Day, Workers' Day, Youth Day, Women's Day, Freedom Day, it certainly seems more appropriate to focus on essential doctrines such as the incarnation of Christ the atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the authority of Christ, the power of Pentecost, Reformation, and other meaningful events of a Christian calendar. So the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We don't allow ourselves to be distracted into fighting fellow Christians who are sincerely trying to honor the Lord in all areas of life. And, and there are Christians with very strong convictions against celebrating Christmas. We don't want to have a fight to them. We don't think they should be having a fight to those who really want to honor the Lord by uh, celebrating Christmas in a God-honoring way. We cannot know someone else's motives. So let's deal with the big issues and the facts. We're talking about thoroughly Christian festivals, celebrating the incarnation of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is really the birthday of the church in many ways. Now, these are great, important events in the history of the church, and they're vital doctrines for us to build our lives around. So to integrate these great church festivals into our calendar in a thoroughly Christian manner is not to celebrate a pagan festival. We must reject the world and apply the Lordship of Christ to it in a thoroughly biblical way to all of our lives and our families. We want to have nothing to do with the pagan trappings of secular holidays, you know, the drunkenness and all the other nonsense. And, uh, you know, honestly, what is the Lord's resurrection got to do with Easter bunnies and what does Christmas have to do with uh, Santa Claus really and so on. Uh, but um, what we should celebrate are the truths and the doctrines of Scripture. By celebrating the modern Christmas holiday, uh, aren't we opening ourselves and our families and our children to worldly influences? That is a danger. There's no doubt that the world is secularized and paganized and perverted and distorted everything it possibly can, including families and churches and Christian holidays. Uh, but that should not stop us from seeking to disciple our children on a thoroughly biblical basis and bring them up in the love and the admonition of the Lord. Christmas is not about Santa Claus. It should be a festival of Christ celebrating the advent of Christ, the incarnation, God with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus should be the reason for the season. Jesus is the one that wise people should be seeking. So the church needs reformation, a back-to-the-Bible reformation, and we need a spiritual revival, and so do our calendars. Now, all too many people have thoughtlessly adopted occultic calendar events like May Day and Halloween, and they celebrate humanistic holidays like Women's Day and Human Rights Day and Youth Day. So let us rather celebrate things that are thoroughly Christian. Put Christ back into Xmas. Many critics of Christmas say Jesus wasn't born in December or that Christmas is merely an old pagan holiday adapted for Christian purposes. How do you respond to these criticisms? Well, what's the biblical evidence? What does the Bible say about the dates of Jesus' birth? 
Luke 2 verse 6 tells us that the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So we assume that Jesus was a full-term baby born nine months after his conception. Luke 1 verse 26 says that the angel Gabriel announced the conception of Jesus to Mary in the sixth month of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. So Jesus was conceived about six months after John the Baptist was conceived. And when was John the Baptist conceived? This is a bit more difficult, but the scriptures suggest some answers. John's father was Zacharias, a Levite priest of the course of Abiah, or Abijah. Read that in Luke 1 verse 5. Now, according to 1 Chronicles 24, 7 to 19, King David had divided the priests into 24 orders. And these orders took turns serving in the temple for a period of eight days, twice a year, separate from the wives and the children. So during their... Uh, that's Zacharias and the other priests of the order of Zabia's uh, time, they served during the 10th and the 24th weeks of the Hebrew calendar. The angel of the Lord spoke to Zacharias while he was executing the priest's office before God in the order of his course. We read in Luke 1 verse 8. That is, while he was performing a service in the temple. Now, after his course was finished, he left the temple, returned to his wife Elizabeth, and John was conceived, we read, Luke 1, 23 to 24. So, if this was after the second course, that is the 24th week of that year, then John would have been conceived around September or October and born around June or July. Jesus' conception six months later would have occurred around March or April and his birth around December or January. Now, there's no absolute certainty this, to this theory, especially given that the Hebrew calendar of only 360 days may have been different from King David's time to Jesus' time, but based on a scriptural account of Zacharias' service in the temple, it's well within the realm of possibility that Jesus was born in December. Now, St. John Chrysostom, who lived from 347 to 407 AD, one of the greatest of the priests, uh, he was a great preacher, uh, he was the pastor of uh, San Sophie, one of the greatest uh, churches and cathedrals in the world, St. Sophie in Constantinople. Now, his status in Eastern Orthodox Church is comparable to that of Augustine in the Western Church. And St. Chrysostom argued strongly for December the 25th birthday because of the course of Zacharias's priestly service. But he also based his conclusion of findings of the bishops, uh, that's Julius of Rome, uh, Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem, 348 to 386 AD, had asked Julius to ascertain the date of Christ's birth from the census documents brought by Titus to Rome after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Julius then determined the date of Christ's birth to be 25 December. Now bear in mind that these people are a lot closer to the events and had access to documents that we do not because of the wars and the upheavals and the destruction. Um, so Julius Cyril and Chrysostom were not alone in their reliance upon the census documents. Justin Martyr, who lived in the second century, in a detailed statement of the Christian faith addressed to Emperor Marcus Aurelius, stated that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as you can ascertain, also from the registrars of the taxing. Now that you read in his Apology, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 34. So likewise, Tertullian, um, who lived through the 2nd to 3rd century from 160 to 250 AD, Tertullian wrote of the census of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, that most faithful witness of the Lord's nativity kept in the archives of Rome. Now, this you read in 
Book 4-7 of Contra Marcion, which is one of Tertullian's great works. Now, unfortunately, we do not have access to all of these census records today, but perhaps the better part of wisdom bids us to assume that these church fathers had access to information that we do not possess and that they knew what they were talking about. Now, some have said that Jesus could not possibly have been born in December because the shepherds did not keep their sheep in the fields past late autumn. But Alfred Edersheim, in his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, published in 1883, cites ancient Hebrew sources to the effect that flocks of sheep remain in the open alike in the hottest days and in the rainy season, that is, all year round. Um, that in Book 2, page 186. There's also a special class of Levitical shepherds who kept sacrificial lambs in the field all year round because they were used for the sacrifice every month of the year. And so Bethlehem, the house of bread, uh, the house of David, that's where the shepherds were keeping the sheep for uh, the temple. And apparently they were in the fields all year round, according to these authorities. Now, winters can be cold in Palestine, but they can vary greatly, and some Decembers are rather mild. A recent study of stalagmites and stalactites in caves near Jerusalem strongly suggests the average annual rainfall dropped nearly 50% from about 3 feet in 100 AD to about 1.6 feet in 700 AD. So average winter temperatures may have varied as much. Uh, and if Mary could have given birth to a baby in a stable or cave in Bethlehem, then hardy shepherds could have watched their flocks in the fields at the same time. So Edesheim concludes there's no adequate reason for questioning the historical accuracy of the date, 25 December. The objections are normally resting on grounds which seem to me historically untenable. What other attacks against Christmas should Christians be aware of? Yes, well, there's all sorts of weird substitutes, but one such is seen in the many emails that tend to circulate concerning the real meaning and origin of the 12 days of Christmas. So according to this widely circulated email, from 1558 until 1829, Roman Catholics in England were not permitted to practice their faith openly. Someone during that era wrote this carol as a catechism song for young Catholics. It has two levels of meaning, with surface meaning plus a hidden meaning known only to members of the church. Each element in the carol is a code word for religious reality which the children could remember. Well, you know, the 12 days of Christmas, you know, on the 12th day of Christmas, what true love gave to me and all that. Well, the problem with this theory is its premise is false. Roman Catholics were not persecuted for their faith in England. They were not forbidden to practice their faith openly. The dates chosen are most interesting, 1558. Well, that's the year in which Bloody Mary died and the Catholic persecution of Protestants in England came to an end. Mary Tudor was well called Bloody Mary because she repudiated the religious freedoms which her brother, King Edward VI, had instituted. Mary passed laws providing for Protestant heretics to be tried in church courts, hand over to civilian authorities for execution, and hundreds of church leaders, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, the most prominent Protestant bishops such as Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were torturously burned for their stake before 1558 under Bloody Mary. And here you've got this 12 days of Christmas saying, from 1558 till 1829 there was religious persecution in England that had to but it's the opposite. Religious persecution in England came to an end in 1558. Uh, the Inquisition in England was burning at the stake. Bible translates like John Rogers and hundreds of other Protestants were condemned to be burned at the stake by the Catholic Inquisitors. Mary even had her 16-year-old cousin, the Protestant Lady Jane Grey, beheaded for refusing to renounce her Protestant faith. She had 
been told that she could save her life if she would renounce the Protestant faith and embrace Catholicism. And Lady Jane Grey bravely went to the went uh, to the block and had her head chopped off as a result of refusing to uh, renounce her faith. And that was under Bloody Mary. And if you want the details on this, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. So the fact of history is that religious persecution in, in England did not begin in 1558. It ended with the death of Bloody Mary in that year. When Mary Tudor died the 17th of November 1558 and her half-sister, the Protestant Elizabeth I, came to the throne, religious freedom was established. So the legend being circulated throughout the internet declares there was no religious freedom for Roman Catholics in England between 1558 and 1829. This is ludicrous. And the underlying meaning of the 12 days of Christmas is no doubt true. However, the suggestion of this email is false. There's nothing in the underlying message uh, of the 12 days of Christmas carol that Protestants don't accept, which Roman Catholics could openly celebrate during Christmas or any time of the year in England, it didn't need uh, to be a special code because Protestants in England also worshipped Jesus Christ, the one Jesus Christ, and believed in the, the two New Testaments and held to the three, faith, hope, and love, and believed in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the five, fifth day of Christmas, uh, the five books of the law, and the six, the six days of creation, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, Eight, the eight Beatitudes. Nine, the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit. The ten, the ten commands. Eleven, the eleven faithful disciples. And twelve, pointing to the Apostles' Creed, the twelve points of the Apostles' Creed. There's nothing distinctly Roman Catholic about those beliefs. There's nothing which Protestants would disagree with within the message of the 12 Days of Christmas song. So what you're getting here is a half-truth. It's more dangerous than a lie. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. For those who banned the Bible and burned Bible translators and persecuted Protestants and suppressed religious freedom, to dare to accuse the Protestants who introduced religious freedom of the kind of intolerance which they themselves practiced is actually abhorrent. It's turning the villains into victims and the victims into villains. And to further suggest that the Protestant Christians who were willing to die for their faith reject the Bible for which they were willing to give their lives and the teachings which they faithfully sought to apply to everyday life is actually bearing false witness against one's neighbor. So while it's nice to look at the underlying meaning of the 12 days of Christmas to suggest that it was needed uh, because there was lack of religious freedom to believe these things between 1558 and um, uh, 1829 really is ludicrous. Why does the email use the date 1829 as the end of um, persecution? What happened in that, 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 that is a pretty arbitrary date, but I think... Um, the, the point is that up till that date, there was a restriction on Roman Catholics uh, being made members of parliament. And the reason for that was that you were required to swear allegiance to the crown uh, and to the Protestant faith which the crown stood for, which had to be uh, Protestant. So um, it, because of the fact that the Catholic powers such as the Vatican and Spain and others were working for the undermining and threatening of the British realm. It was considered that you could not be a fully patriotic um, uh, English person as a member of parliament and, and administering the realm. It couldn't be a Catholic, uh, uh, for example, prime minister or cabinet minister and so on. Uh, so the, when they uh, removed that obstacle, uh, mainly to allow Roman Catholics to represent their constituents in Ireland, for example. Uh, that, that was some of the reasoning behind it. 
basically that was to do with full political participation. It had nothing to do with whether Roman Catholic churches could meet and um, have all of their different religious rites and, and teach their catechism. So uh, basically what they've done is because Catholics lost political control in 1558 and regained some of it in 1829, well, okay, political control is not the same thing as spiritual doctrines. So what is the best way to celebrate Christmas then, Dr. Hammond? Well, uh, there are good ways to celebrate Christmas. So it's appropriate that the greatest holiday on calendars worldwide celebrates the birth of the greatest person who ever lived. I think it's worthwhile reminding people, do you remember the reason for the season? Do you remember whose birth to be celebrating? Is this a good time for, for evangelism? And Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived, and it's appropriate he has the greatest birthday uh, in Anna's birthday is the greatest event on the calendar all over the world. And every charity and many ministries and missions report that this is the best time of the year for donations. It's quite appropriate that many good acts of charity and good neighborliness and friendship and generosity are expressed during the Christmas season to friends and families, to neighbors, to strangers. And, you know, in our family, uh, we have frequently baked special Christmas cookies. When I say we, I don't suggest I was doing the baking, but my wife and daughter's uh, doing Christmas uh, cookie baking. And then I would go often with the boys uh, to our neighbors and take some Christmas cookies to them and uh, to the police station. And we've sometimes gone to the uh, local hospital, like the children's hospital and given a gift of fluffy animals and, and uh, sweets and other baked things uh, to the children who are stuck in hospital over Christmas. And, uh, You can imagine those poor policemen on duty on Christmas Day, so we'd normally take things to them. So there's there's different things you can do, but so often people at, go uh, at Christmas and visit their neighbors and, and deliver something, some baked goods or uh, wishes and Christmas cards and so on. And um, we've also uh, come across families, like you just think of Small Paul and his uh, family, the young family who... Uh, involved in drawing people to Christ through through literally um, chalk talk, um, a graphic art type of, of evangelism in the open air. They've sometimes gone into prisons on Christmas Day in order to share the gospel with people on Christmas Day. What a lovely thing to do. So there's many things people can do to share the gospel on Christmas Day. Well, one way our listeners uh, can be generous is by spreading the message and the information in this broadcast to friends and family. And to anyone, you can forward the disinformation about Christmas or about Roman Catholics in England not being allowed to practice their faith openly between 1558 and 1829. Uh, my daughter, Daniela, and wife, Nora frequently have sung in choirs at this time, either uh, going through uh, Christmas carol uh, readings, you know, the, the, the different uh, readings and carol services, or um, performing Handel's Messiah and uh, other great uh, performances. So these are, are wonderful events. We've had carols by candlelight, and uh, whether it was the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra that my wife was part of or the, the youth uh, choir, which Daniela was part of, uh, frequently we'd find ourselves out in different places and churches and out um, uh, on the, the lawns and, and beautiful parks and at Groot Constantia, uh, singing the faith and supporting these carol services which are wonderful. So the official birthday of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is a good reason to celebrate. It's time to put Christ back into Xmas. I mean, why put an X through what should be uh, Christ? And, you know, do people not they prefer Merry Xmas um, instead of you know having to admit whose birthday they're celebrating? 
Jesus is the reason for the season. Wise men still seek him. And so, you know, at this time, we should also use it for evangelism. If you're going through the shops and so on, and people will often ask you, how are you? And you might ask them, how are you? And many times people respond, good. I think they've been pre-programmed for American culture to say, I'm good. You you can even ask a person, would you like some tea or coffee? No, I'm good. And at that point, you can say, but Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. And at that point, you can start an evangelistic conversation. I mean, I've, I've had people stop what they're doing and look very intently and say, you know, that is so true. No one is good except God alone. And uh, now you've introduced the concept of God and eternity and the depravity of man and the holiness of God. And therefore, implicit in that is the need for salvation. So we could then go further and, and say, do you know what one's got to do to go to heaven? Uh, maybe you are, for example, uh, traveling somewhere and you get lost or you need directions. And you could actually sometimes try this even. You can stop a person and say, excuse me, do you know how I can get to heaven? And uh, uh, the most uh, funny short answer I've ever heard that is, turn right and go straight. Um, which is, yep, okay, that's that's a good quick way of putting it. Uh, but many people are quite puzzled by the point of, how do you get to heaven? You know, asking for directions. And a person might even ask you directions and uh, um, after you've given the directions to where they want to go, you could ask something. Can I ask you a question? Do you know how to get to heaven? And uh, many people just don't know. And, and uh, sometimes when a person comes out with this, I'm good, you could ask a question like, how many of the Ten Commands can you remember? And many people can't relate many, but they get some of the big ones like, well, you shouldn't lie or steal and murder. Um, and some might even remember, don't commit adultery. And so you could say, well, have you ever lied? And most people admit, yes. And then you could say, have you ever stolen? Sometimes you get people saying, no. You say, well, you just admitted you're a liar. Um, okay, you know, once, it's very small, something very small. Isn't that another lie? Yeah, I know. It is. I've actually taken. You can ask, rephrase a question, say, how many lies have you told in your life? Most people would say countless. You could say uh, to a person, um, how many uh, times do you think you've taken the Lord's name in vain? And again, many people would look quite shamefacedly and say, uh, too many times. And you can point out uh, to folks, just by going through some of these things, uh, that, you know, we're not good. No one is good except God alone. If a person says, I'm good, would you consider yourself to be a good person? And some people would say, I'm a very good person. Most people say they're good people. And then you could say, could ask some questions to see if that's true. And most people are wanting to be self-justifying, so they'll say, go ahead. So you ask, how many lies have you told in your life? And most will admit a lot, even countless. Have you ever stolen something? You can get people saying yes or no, you say, have you ever borrowed something and failed to return? Have you ever broken something and failed to repair it or do a restitution for it? Yes, well, that's like theft. Have you ever murdered someone? Whew, a lot of people are relieved. No, I've never murdered anyone. Well, I've met people in the streets, especially in the K-flat, said, yes. Um, and uh, they're quite serious. But you could say, Jesus said, if you've ever hated someone, it's like committing murder in your heart. You can ask people, have you committed adultery? And people squirm. You say, have you ever looked with lust? Yes. Jesus said, in the Sermon Mount, if you look with lust, it's like committing adultery in your heart. And if a by this stage, somebody might have even taken God's name in vain. You can say, now, uh, that's blasphemy. That's very serious. Would you ever take your mother's name and use it like a swear word? And no. Why not? Because I respect my mother. Right. 
So why would you take the name of the Lord of glory, the God of heaven and earth, the creator, the eternal judge, one who's done no harm to you but only given you good things? Why would you use his name as a filthy term of disrespect and disgust? And, uh, you know, many people will admit. So by just getting people to be a bit self-reflective for a moment, you could ask another diagnostic question. If you were to die today, do you know for sure whether you'd go to heaven or not? And many people say, I hope so, but very few will say, I, I don't, uh, I, I know. Yes, uh, many would say no, uh, or I don't know. And uh, you could say, if God was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you answer? And you get all kinds of interesting questions, answers there. You might get people saying, because I'm a good person, because I go to church, because my sister's a nun. I've actually heard those answers. There's some very interesting explanation as to why people should be into heaven. And so to try and explain how can a good God, how can a holy God allow sinful people like you and me into his heaven? And you want to get people thinking about this. So Christmas is a great time to get people to think about eternity, to think about God, to think about the Bible, to give them gifts. I remember my first Christmas as a Christian. It was 1977. I just got converted. I was 17 years old. Everyone in my family got a Bible for Christmas. And their eyes were rolling and my very secular family was sort of groaning, um, this irritating religious fanatic, youngest baby in the family, giving everybody Bibles. And uh, But it took m months, it took years in some cases for each member of my family to come to the Lord, but they did. And uh, don't give up on your family. Uh, this is a great season for meaningful gifts, whether it's in terms of great music or books or or. Um, uh, films or uh, a Bible even, uh, just think of how you can give something that's going to count for eternity and really be a blessing. So those are just some of the ways how you can celebrate Christmas. Uh, I think watching a film like Ben-Hur uh, is super powerful and great. Um, and um, uh, The Nativity Story is also a very powerful uh, film, one of the very excellent films made, The Nativity Story. And um, uh, there's one of these great scriptures in the Old Testament and Isaiah 9 that, that really gets the grip of, of uh, Christmas and I've written that in many a Christmas card maybe you'd like to incorporate in a Christmas letter sent to people. Isaiah 9 verse 6 to 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom in to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Dr. Hammond, what resources can you suggest for listeners who want to learn more about the Christmas holiday? Yes, well, go on to the Christian Action website. That's christianaction.org.za website and look for our articles on Christmas. You'll find quite a few articles which will tackle a whole range of Christmas um, subject matter and uh, even this sort of subject matter uh, as to, you know, when was Jesus born and uh, he wasn't born on December the 25th, was he? And uh, um, should Christians celebrate Christmas? These sort of questions are covered. So go into the christianaction.org website uh, or onto the www.frontlinemissionsa.org website. You'll find also under our video and audio um uh, archives, a whole lot of uh, Christmas-related messages that you can look for on our uh, sermon audio, uh, the Frontline Fellowship sermon audio. You'll also find, if you just search for Christmas, a whole lot of different sermons that you can uh, find useful and helpful. In the book, Make a Difference, a Christian Action Handbook for Southern Africa, you will also find 
uh, a chapter on a Christian calendar and, and tackling some of these issues. At the Christian Liberty Bookshop, you'll also find quite a lot of very useful materials, and you can just visit the website even, www.christianlibertybooks.co.za. Of course, we have a Biblical Worldview Summit coming up as well, uh, starting on the 5th of January, from the 5th of January to 11th of, of January, uh, and you will find many of these contemporary issues will be tackled there. So we look forward to hearing from you, and you can also email us, info at christianaction.org.za. Dr. Hammond, thank you for your time and for clearing up misconceptions about Christmas and for your inspiring message. Please join us next week at the same time, 104 FM on Radio Tigerberg, for the next program of Salt and Light. God bless and good night.